Well, good morning again. I hope you all are enjoying your Sunday. We're going to be moving towards sort of the next aspect of who God is in our study, one-to-one, finding your one. But before I do, I just want to take a moment, and I want to ask you a question. How many of you have someone who is on your spiritual radar? Or how many of you have individuals who are on your spiritual radar? Okay. Raise your hands just a little bit higher. Everybody just kind of look around the room. Right? There are people out there that we are praying for. There are people out there that need to know Jesus Christ. And one of the things that I want to encourage us in as we're walking through this study in one-to-one, what I've sensed from what I hear from a lot of individuals who are following Christ as our world is in the tumultuous nature that it is, that there is this call of come Lord Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that that's wrong. We obviously should be anticipating and asking the Lord Jesus to come. I'm not going to tell Jesus when he does, hey, I'm not ready, could you come back tomorrow? But the other part of this is, should we not just be saying that, but also be going to ourselves and saying, you know what? The world is getting worse, and we need to be the light into the world for such a time as this. Should we be going out and telling people about the joy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as the world apparently turns more and more into darkness? If you look around, if you saw those hands up, I'd be willing to bet that it's not just for a single individual. It might be. But there are people out there who we are asking God for opportunities to come and tell them about who Jesus Christ is. Now, the first thing that I want to encourage you in is is be reminded about the fact that we are called to plant and we are called to water. God is the one who does the work of the ministry. He is the one who does the work of salvation. But he utilizes us as his ambassadors to be the message of the gospel. And so one of the questions that I want to ask you is this. How often are we going to the Lord in prayer for those who don't know Jesus Christ? Are we incorporating that into our daily living? Are we going to God and rather than focusing necessarily on ourselves and our needs, are we actually going to God and saying, hey Lord, Is there a way that you can use me today, this week, this month, to be salt and light for somebody out there who either is struggling in their faith or doesn't know you at all? We all should be looking for those individuals in our lives that God places before us to have an opportunity to be Christ to them, to demonstrate Christ to them, And so with that, that's why we are doing this one-to-one, finding your one. These last two weeks, we looked particularly at the Bible. We discovered how God reveals himself and why. We looked at how individuals who wrote the things of God were divinely inspired to accurately depict who God is, what he has done, what he desires for us, and what happens to us when we are saved. And then we also looked at the authenticity of the Bible, the accuracy of the Bible, because we often discover that many times individuals will have simple questions of, how can I trust that what is written there is really who God is or what God said or what he has done? 
And so I pray that that has encouraged you to help us to see truly how accurate the scriptures are. It is a unique book because we know that it is divinely uh, inspired by God. Now, that being said, this morning we're turning our eyes to sort of a next question. Okay, perhaps an individual has come forward and said, I see the importance of the Bible, but I want to know more about who God is or what God is like. And so this morning we're going to turn and ask this question, and that is, what is God really like, and how can we really know anything about him? Now, this morning, for some of you, this might be just a simple review. Some of you, this might be refreshment. Some of you, some of the things that I talk about might be new in your understanding of who God is. But I think that when we ask people simply, is there a God? Or if there is, what is God like? You're going to get a variety of responses, aren't you? Has anybody ever had the opportunity just to go up to somebody and just go and say, you know, if there's a God, what do you think he, she, it, or they are like? Anybody have those moments? I'm the only one. Nobody's been moving forward. Okay, well, we've got some work to do. Okay? In my experience, when I talk to people about who God is, there are a couple of things that I would say I see, but also what we are told or what we see in the study that Dr. Robert Lewis uh, comes and, and tells us about. The first thing that I think would resonate with all of us is, is that God is all accepting. Okay? God is all accepting. The first part of this, and what I want to show you is, is that what we think about God is not necessarily the truth about God. Apologize, I went quickly, but what we think about God is not necessarily the truth about God. How many individuals, when you talk to them, say, hey, this is what I think about God? And then what we discover is what they think is not the truth of who God is in a scripture. And the first one is, is God is not all accepting. Too often, many people think that all dogs go to heaven. I'm going to use that line. Everybody gets to go to heaven. Doesn't matter who you are, no matter what you do, everybody's going to get to heaven some way or another. And one of the things that we have to recognize and realize is, is that could not be further from the truth. Not all dogs go to heaven. Whether we like it or not, the reality of the scriptures and what we discover as we see God revealed through them is that yes, God is a loving God and God has died for all, but not all dogs go to heaven. God is not a Unitarian. He is not a Universalist. It does not mean that everyone who is created will ultimately end up in his kingdom. And the reason that we need to remember and recognize that if that is the case and if there are multiple ways that we can end up in heaven, then why would God go through the great lengths that he has done in the scriptures to provide us a savior known as our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? So the first thing that we need to remember and recognize when we encounter individuals who talk about what they think about God is to help them understand and see that while it would be a nice thing to say, the reality is not all dogs go to heaven. The other thing that I want to back up there is we see clearly in scripture that there are two and only two distinct places where people will end up in eternal realms. One is in heaven, 
in God's kingdom. And the reason that they end up there is because they've placed their faith and trust in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. We are saved by grace through faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus, as the scriptures will tell and as we will discover when we travel through this study more. But the other place is what we call eternal damnation or hell. It is a real physical place where individuals are separated from God and they are tortured because they are no longer in the presence of God. One of the things that we have to recognize in that is that is the reality of who God is and the spiritual reality of who we are apart from Christ, apart from God. The reason that I'm saying that today is it is an uncomfortable thing to speak about. People don't like to hear, hey, I'm a good person, I do good things, I have good intentions. If I'm good enough, I'm going to get over the scale and make it into heaven. That's not a reality. How many times have you gone to someone and said, hey, where do you think you're going to end up at when you die? And you hear the words, well, I hope I'm good enough to get to heaven. Has anybody ever heard those words? I hear that all the time. I hope I'm good enough to get to heaven. Let me make us all uncomfortable. None of us, myself included, are good enough to get to heaven. No matter how good we are, we can't get there on our own. The other thing that I want to encourage us in is is to think about this. How many of you would love to do good deeds, right? Do all of these good things, you know, help old ladies across the street, you know, work at food pantries. All of this is good, but you've got your resume. You've done all of these good things. And then you get up to the pearly gates, and there is Peter. And he's greeting you, and you're like, hey, look, here's my resume. And Peter comes, and he looks down, and he goes, you know, You've done 1,942 good things. That's awesome. But I have some bad news for you. The quota to get into heaven is 1,945. You missed it by that much. And so the purpose that I'm bringing there is how good is good enough? Where do we draw the line at being good? And the spiritual reality of the fact is is that good enough is never good enough because none of us are good enough to be in the kingdom of God in and of ourselves. Why is that important? Because we're going to discover as we look not only at who God is but what Christ has done is that Christ is the one who makes the sacrifice on the cross not to make us good enough but to make us perfect to be with God in heaven. Not because of what we have done, but all because of what Christ has done. And that draws our hearts to worship him because of who he is, what he has done, and what he promises for us as a eternal inheritance due to his sacrifice on the cross. That is why God sends Christ as the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. He, 
atones or stands in for our sin. So the first thing that we have to see is that God is not all accepting. Friends and brothers and sisters in Christ, the reality is, no matter what we want to think, those who are not in Christ will not be with Christ in God's kingdom throughout eternity. That is the importance of salvation. Now, the other thing that I want to encourage you in is how many of you have heard from individuals that they believe in a God or gods, but they're very impersonal? They're sort of out there. They're, they're doing their thing. They set the world in motion, or he, she, or it sort of created stuff, but they want nothing to do with us. They're hard to reach. They're angry or they're displeased. And so the next thing that I want to encourage you with is God is not impersonal. As much as individuals might think that there are gods out there or a God who is out there that has set the world in motion and doesn't care, what we come to discover in the scriptures is that God is a deep, personal, and relational God who desires a deep, personal, and relational relationship with us. And one of the things that we need to encourage people in is that that relationship can be made real when we place our faith and trust in Jesus. As we look at who God is, we're going to see sort of what I would say uh, a variety of different attributes as we look at sort of the overarching aspect of God. But before I dive into these, I also want to let you know that these are not an exhaustive list. What I tell you today is sort of an overarching aspect as we look at the nature of God and knowing him, but I also want you to know that when we're finished with this, these are not the only things that we see as who our God is. But we have to recognize when we're working with people that first they need to understand that God is not all accepting and that God is not impersonal. He wants to know us, and he wants a relationship with us. And so in that, we're going to go back and we're going to see that not only that what we think about God is not necessarily the truth about God, but we're going to discover and recognize that the Bible is the only hope for us knowing what God is really like. If we want to know what God is really like, we need to turn to the scriptures. And the reason that that is in there is we've spent the last two weeks recognizing the uniqueness of the Bible, the fact that it is inspired by God, that it is accurate, and that it is God revealing himself to us. So obviously, if we want to know what God is really like, we need to go to the Bible. Now, some of you are like, yeah, we know that. But one of the things that I want to encourage you in is in this. Too often... Do I see people getting their theology from these sort of extra-biblical texts and then thinking, well, that's what God is like? Let me give you a couple of examples. If you want to read the shack, go ahead and do it. I'm not going to tell you not to read the shack, but don't get your theology from it. What you read about God in the shack is not who God is. There's a famous book written by an individual who talked about sort of their hardship in life, and then as they ventured back into the woods, they discover who God is. 
And in that, what we see, and it's depicted in a movie, that God was or is a female who is a multi-God sense, who is a Unitarian, loving God for all of creation. And so often what happens is, is individuals will take some of these things and they will place them into their theology of who God is, and it will confuse them as to who really the God of scriptures will be and has revealed himself to be. And so first and foremost, one of the things that I want to encourage us with is that if we want to know who God is, we need to go to the Bible. And the Bible is our only hope of knowing what God is really like. The next thing that I want to tell you is this. What is revealed in the Bible about who God is is how we should submit ourselves to the nature, purpose, and plan of God. We shouldn't look at the scriptures and say, well, I don't like that part. I don't like what God does there. I don't like how God works there. So I'm going to remove that, or I'm not going to talk about that. Or, better yet, I just want to talk about God being a God of love. Now, God is a God of love. God is an extremely loving God. In fact, as we study and look in the scriptures, the display of God's love is the ultimate expression of the greatest love of all, which is the giving of his son on the cross on our behalf. But we also have to recognize that God, in being a God of love, is not just a God of love. He is a just God. He is a holy God. He is a set-apart God. He is an all-knowing God. He is a righteous God. And all of these attributes of who he is form who we learn him to be. So as we look down, the next thing I want you to see is this, that God does not conform to our assumptions or opinions about him. And that's so important for us to think and realize. God does not conform to our assumptions or opinions about him. He is who he is. And I could preach a whole message just on that aspect God is who he is. Now, in a moment, I'm going to read to you from Scripture, but why is this important? Because so often in our world today, we look and we see leaders out there, and all they are doing is trying to conform themselves to popular opinion. Not going to make a political sermon, okay? That's not what I'm going to do here. But how many of us have looked at a politician 20 years ago, and they've said X. And now, 20 years today, they say the exact opposite of what they said 20 years ago. Does that happen? Okay, now, okay, we're gonna get away from politics, but the purpose behind that is they're conforming to what popular opinion wants. Hey, if it's going to get me more votes, if it's going to get me or us in office, we're going to change our message. And so, unfortunately, oftentimes what individuals will do is they will take that thought and they will think, well, you know, God used to say this or God used to think that, but that's just not popular anymore. That's just not with the times. That's just not what reality is today. And then we begin to think that God is up there kind of saying, man, I better stay in office. 
you know, the elections are coming up next year, so I better change my platform. I better change what I said because I don't want to get kicked off of the throne. Nothing could be further from the truth. God is who he is, period. He does not change. He does not conform. He does not solicit popularity, and he doesn't ask us for a vote, we look at this and we see in Exodus 3, 13 through 14, as God is speaking to Moses, helping them understand and move out of exile, he looks and um, Moses asks God a question. You know, what am I supposed to tell them when I'm, when I'm going to them and saying, hey, we gotta do this? And God just basically looks and we're gonna discover in a minute, he says, tell them I am who I am. This is what it says. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell him? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God doesn't change. Now, again, real quick, what if an individual came up running for office and they said, tell us your political platform. Tell us what you are. And they said, I am who I am. What would happen? Why can God say this? Why can God, with confidence, just say, I am who I am? Well, first of all, it is because he is who he is. He is the creator and maker of the universe. He is the sustainer of all things. He is our Lord and Savior. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the maker of heaven and earth. All of these things God is. But the reason that God turns to Moses and says, I am who I am, is because in that, those that know will understand and recognize this is who God is, and they will not question the authority and the relationship that is there. The only reason that God can say, I am who I am, is because he is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the one who has created the universe, he is the one that has created us. He is the one that has created our lives. And he is the one who is the end, which is the culmination in his kingdom. And so the thing that we have to recognize when we look at the scriptures and we have to help people to see is that God will not change. Why is that important? Number one, for us, to recognize, A, it brings great security in where we hang our hat, where we hang our salvation, where we hang our eternal destiny. Let me put it this way. How many of you would want to be with a God who you thought was X, and then all of a sudden, because popular opinion is no longer in that God's favor, God, little g, comes forward and says, mm, you know what, we're gonna change that. We're now gonna go over here because that's what more people want. How many of you would want to hang your hat on the salvation of Jesus Christ 
trusting and knowing that that's what is going to get you to heaven. And then all of a sudden have God come forward and say, you know what, that's not popular anymore. So we've discovered that there are going to be other ways that people can get to heaven. Or better yet, you know what, Jesus just isn't it, so you all gotta figure something else out. Part of the reason that we can have confidence in our salvation is because we rest in the God who is. Now the other side of this as well is God isn't out there to appease us. God isn't out there to be popular. God isn't out there to sequester our vote, for lack of a better word. He is who he is. As we look at that, one of the things that I want to encourage you in, when we discover more about who God is, that solidifies the attributes of which we worship him with and why we understand who God is as he reveals himself in scriptures. So the first thing that I want to show you as we discover who God is, is this next aspect, and that is that God is triune. God is Trinity. God is three in one, and I will describe that in just a minute. Why is this important? I won't go too long in it, but first and foremost, we have seen sort of a surge in what I would call the realm of, and I'm gonna put it in quotes, Christianity, that will deny the triune essence of God. It will deny the doctrine of the Trinity. I won't go too long in this, but I discovered this and encountered this myself several years ago when in my ordination exam, I was asked by someone quite seriously if I thought that the triune nature of God was a Roman polytheistic ploy by Constantine to appease the masses and essentially gain the popular vote of the people, okay? Let me explain that real quick. A long time ago, Constantine was an emperor and he essentially brought the people to Christian faith. But this individual was saying that in order for the subjects to worship, he came up with the idea of, yes, God is one, but let's make him three. Okay, let's figure out how we can sort of maneuver the scriptures to make him three. And the reason for that is because all of the people that are around me are polytheistic, multi-God thinkers in their understanding of who God is. So in order for me to make it easier for them to come under the Christian realm, let's create a God who is three. Okay? That's very dangerous because what we see in the scriptures is from the beginning, God is triune. God is three in one and I will talk about that for you. The first thing that we see is God is one. God is one in the aspect of the Trinity. We see this in scripture in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Then we also see this in Isaiah 44, verses six through eight. This is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no God. So there are no other gods. It is not polytheistic in nature. 
Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what is to come. Do not tremble, do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. So God is one. Yet, what we see is God is three. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see this in the beginning of scriptures in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. We hear the words, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Right there is the triune reference to God. Come, let us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make man in our image, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right from the beginning of Genesis, we recognize the triune nature of God. And then we see this also in Isaiah 48, verse 12 and 16. Um, I have inserted for you, okay, you're going to see the references so that we can see this more clearly. We read these words. Listen to me, O Jacob Israel, whom I have called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. I am the alpha and I am the omega. Okay? And that is the reference to the Father. Come near me, Jesus. The me in this is Jesus. And listen to this. From the first announcement, I have not spoken in secret. At the time it happens, I am there. And now the sovereign Lord, the Father, has sent me, Jesus, with his Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit. It is a reference to the triune nature of God. We see that in Isaiah 48, 12, and particularly in verse 16. And so what does this mean? Well, I'm going to state this, and then I'm going to talk about it for just a moment. The Trinity is the unity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as three persons in one Godhead. God is the Father, God is the Son, and God is the Holy Spirit. However, the Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father, and the Holy Spirit is not the Son. You might have seen a diagram where you look, and there is God in the center, and there are three sort of entities going out like a triangle. We see that God is here, we have the Father, we have the Son, and we have the Holy Spirit. Some of you might want to draw that because you are more of a pictorial person. And so what you would put is God at the center, you would put the Father at the top, you could put the Son on this side, and you could put the Holy Spirit on this side. And then as you do that from the center, you could put lines going to each. And so it would be God is the Father. And then resonating from here, God is the Son. And God is the Holy Spirit. But then on the outside of the triangle, you would recognize that the Father is not the Son, nor is the Son the Father. 
And the Son is not the Holy Spirit, nor is the Holy Spirit the Son. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father, and the Father is not the Holy Spirit. Now, we have to recognize that God is triune. And one of the things that I want to encourage you in is this. It's kind of weird, isn't it? I'm not going to lie. God's weight, one but three. Three and one. So he's one God, but he is also the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yes, God is triune. And one of the things that I want to encourage you in is as you look at the writing of scriptures, the writers of the scriptures are aware of this tension. They are aware of this dynamic that God is three in one. And what's interesting about it is they make no attempt to correct it. They make no attempt to say, you know, this is gonna be too hard for people to understand. We gotta change something here. They simply reveal it. Why? Because we go back and we recognize that God has revealed himself to man. The authors have divinely inspired the writing of who God is and they've recorded it accurately. So being wholly aware of this tension, they don't do anything to change it. God is three in one. God is triune. But also, as we travel through, we come to discover that God is all-knowing. God is all-knowing. One of the greatest things for us to recognize is, is that we worship a God who knows all. Why is this important? Because there's nothing in God's economy where he's going to have us come to him and have him say, Never really thought about that before. Don't really know anything about it. Wasn't aware of that. I didn't get that memo. No one told me about that. I missed out on that. Sorry, I didn't take that class. Go ask your mother. God is all-knowing. And why is that important for us? Well, first let me read to you from Psalm 147.5. This is just a snapshot. There are several scriptures that move to this understanding. But this is what Psalm 147.5 says. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. Why should that be important for us? Because not only is God all-knowing in knowledge, but God is all-knowing about our lives and our hurts and our pains. One of the things that we realize in the, the personal nature of who God is, is he is aware of our struggles. He is aware of what we are challenged with. And that should bring great comfort to us. Because oftentimes people will think, you know, God just can't relate to me. He just doesn't understand what I'm going through. He doesn't understand what I struggle with. And because God is all-knowing, he does. But let me put this another way. God is also all-knowing. So in those deep recesses of your lives where you think, you know what, I just gotta look good on Sundays, I gotta just shower and make sure that I come in and put on a smile and tell everybody that I love Jesus, but the second that I walk out that door, I'm gonna go do what I want, how I want, and where I want because today is today and for tomorrow we die. God knows, God sees, and God is aware. Now, in that, I'm not doing that to scare you because in a moment we're gonna come to discover that God is slow to anger and he's caring and full of grace. But that should also recognize that you're not getting away with it. I might not know about it. We might not know about it. 
But God does. God is all-knowing. And so in that, that should help us to see and help us to draw our hearts and our lives to this. None of us are perfect, okay? I'm gonna be 100% honest with you. Spend 20 minutes with me, I've said this before, on the highway, and you're gonna discover that there are areas in my life that God is still refining, right? But overall, my hope and my prayer as I worship my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is that what you see up here is what you get out there. A sinner saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ who loves his Lord and is moving and molding his life as God works through me more and more into the image of my Savior Jesus Christ, recognizing the grace and mercy of God as I stumble and bumble through life and continue to sin, yet God graciously forgives. And prayerfully, what you're seeing is that little by little in my life, I am moving closer to God, realizing that I'm not perfect. That's what we're after, and that's what God is asking from us. God is all-knowing. God knows about your hurts. God knows about your pain. God knows about those areas of which you're wondering and you're questioning. And there's no area where God is going to look at you and say, that's off limits. That's too far. I can't give an answer to that. You can go to him and you can say, Father, this is what I'm struggling with. This is what I'm hurting with. Help me here, help me there. And he says, I know and I'm here and I care. But also, God is all-knowing because he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. The next thing that I want to share with you is that God is holy. God is holy. We heard earlier about the holiness of God. Keith prayed about the fact that God is holy. He's set apart. He's distinct. There is none other like him. And so one of the things that I think is so important when we talk to people about who God is and when we worship him is the holiness of his nature, the holiness of who he is. And one of the things that I think is so important for us to see is that, yes, God has a deep desire to be relational with us. God wants us to know him, but also God is set apart. He's not our best friend. He is king. He is Lord of lords. He is to be set apart, and we are to revere his name. We see in Isaiah 6.3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Three times the statement is made. Now, interestingly enough, there, sometimes we look at that and we think, well, maybe, you know, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Why did they say it three times? Okay? That's the answer. They didn't need it for a song. They weren't looking and saying, you know what? We've got holy is the Lord Almighty, but it's going to sound better when we're saying holy, 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 because we've got to get to the tempo, we've got to get it right. They're also not saying it because they just wanted it for emphasis. They said, you know, some of these people out there, they kind of fall asleep sometimes, so if we tell them three times, holy, 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 hopefully they will get it. What it is, is it's a reference to the Trinity. Holy is the Father. Holy is the Son. Holy is the Holy Spirit. The three 
in one, the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So one of the things that I want to encourage us in is this. What are we doing to set God apart? Are we revering his name? Is there a difference in him? Or in our lives, are we allowing some of the things of the world to come in and permeate our hearts and our lives and our daily living? What are we doing to set him apart in our lives? What are we doing in our lives to set us apart from the world? Think about that for a minute. We are called to be different. People are to look at us and say there is something different about that person. And hopefully, in it, they will see that that difference is that we are set apart. That our hearts aren't for this world. That our desires aren't for this world, but they're for our king and his kingdom. That really what drives us, what motivates us, and our purpose is not our own glory, but it's our king's glory and his kingdom's sake. The next thing that I want you to see is that God is just. How many are... uh, Wanting justice in the world. Anybody? How many of you look out there and you say, that is just not just? God is just. And what we recognize is God will bring justice because he is the God who is just. In Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14, we see this. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. This passage is essentially the culmination of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's important for us to see because what we see in this is the writer is writing essentially of, I have done all, I have seen all, I know all. I've experienced everything. I've looked around the world, I've lived the world, I've seen it all, and in this, what I'm coming to know, what I'm coming to discover is this simple conclusion. What is the chief end of man? What is the purpose of our lives? And that is what is stated. We are to fear God and keep his commandments because God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. That should make us incredibly excited and it should also terrify us. Because what we recognize is everything that we do will be brought into judgment, both good and evil. Now, later on, we're going to discover more about the nature of the Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and why we not need fear judgment because of what Christ has done. But we also need to remember that truly God is just. That should bring hope and encouragement to our lives and to our hearts. When will true justice come? Brothers and sisters, what I will tell you is true justice will come at the culmination when God says to Jesus, go and collect your bride, the church. That is when we will see justice. That is when the just God will reveal himself holy. That is when God will bring justice to the world and we are to be reminded that God says what? 
Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So trust him that he will bring justice to those whom are evil, but also recognize that he will bring justice to every deed that is good and every deed that is evil. We also see in 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Essentially another reiteration of the justice of God and the judgment of God, helping us to see that indeed, not only is God holy, but he is just. And then this is the one that I want to take a moment and spend a little bit of time on with you. Because often individuals will say, well, God is a mean God. Okay? God's just waiting for when I do something wrong to strike me down with a lightning bolt. God doesn't care about me. God doesn't want to give me second chances. I'm too far beyond the reach of God. If you know what I've done, why would God ever want me? And one of the things that we're going to see and recognize is this, that God is gracious, God is slow to anger, and God is forgiving. Such a beautiful part of who God is. Yes, God is triune. Yes, God is all-knowing. Yes, God is holy. Yes, God is just. But we also recognize that God is gracious, he's slow to anger, and he is forgiving. In Exodus 34, verse 7, this is what is stated. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood uh, there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. While God is triune, while God is all-knowing, while God is holy, and while God is just, he is also gracious, slow to anger, and a forgiving God. One of the things that we want to be encouraged in, and one of the things that we want to help people see in the scriptures, is the fact that indeed, God cares about each and every one of us, and he is extremely gracious with us as his creation. Time and time again, as we go through the Old Testament, we see the graciousness of God. Every single time, the people of God get into a mess and God is gracious with them and aids them and brings them out of the situation they are in. And the people of God look and they get excited and they say, thank you, God, and life goes on and the next thing you know, what happens? They mess it up again. And God comes in his grace and being slow to anger and in his forgiveness and he aids them once again and draws them back to himself. And then they mess it up again and God does the same thing. And so often we think, well, that's fine, but we're used to this idea of baseball, three strikes and you're out. I mean, I get it if you mess up once, I get it if you mess up twice, but the third time, I mean, come on. And yet God continues to forgive. God continues to be filled with grace. God continues to display that he is slow to anger. And he does so culminating with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his death on the cross so that we might have our sins forgiven. The ultimate expression of the graciousness of God, the slow to anger and the forgiveness of God is seen in Christ when he goes to the cross. 
We read also in Nehemiah 9, verses 16 through 17, but they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. They wanted their own. They wanted their own idea. And God could have said, fine. That's it, you're on your own, I'm done. I'm done with you, I want nothing more to do with you. But notice this next part of the verse. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them. Does that resonate with anyone here? The slow graciousness of God, not deserting, as we try to discover gods of our own, as we try to do things on our own. Time and time again, God says, I am here, I love you, and I care for you. And so one of the things that we need to recognize about the nature of God is that he is gracious, he is slow to anger, and he is forgiving. But the last thing that I want to leave us with is this. If God is gracious, if God is slow to anger, and God is forgiving, why is the church not that today? Brothers and sisters in Christ, it's something that we must seriously think about. I'm not saying that we must conform to the world. I'm not saying that we appease the world in their sin. But one of the things that I think is so hard right now is I see the anger of the church brewing. I see these statements made by people on Facebook in anger when someone disagrees with them or someone says something contrary to Jesus. And lovingly, what I want to tell you is this. You're not going to argue someone to Christ on Facebook. What are we doing to be gracious? What are we doing to be slow to anger? What are we doing to be forgiving? Because if that is who our God is, that is who we need to emulate when we walk with Jesus Christ. Recognizing that there is justness, there is holiness, God is all-knowing, that ultimately God has all things in control. But how can we go to someone and tell them that God is gracious, slow to anger, and forgiving, and then three seconds later get on to Facebook and blast off something incredibly mean because someone disagrees with what we've said on Facebook? or TikTok, or whatever it is these days. This area is an area that I think we need to think about and pray about and go to God and say, how might we be more gracious? How might we demonstrate the slow to anger and the forgiveness of God in our lives so that others truly see the God who we worship? We've looked at a lot of aspects, and one of the things that I want to encourage you in, I've said it earlier, is this, this is not an exhaustive list. This is sort of a smorgasbord of the nature of who God is. I encourage you to take time to go beyond this, to discover more of the nature of God, to look into the names of God, to look at the wholeness of who God is. And to be honest with you, the answer that I'm going to give you is this. We discover a very good picture of who God is 
We need not be afraid that we don't know who God is, but we will never, ever plumb the depths of the totality of our God. And we never, ever should reach the depths of the totality of our God. Because in that, we become God. Sounds familiar all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. I leave you with this. We want to know who God is. Well, first and foremost, God is not who we make him to be. God is not who we make him to be. God is who he is. He is triune. He is all-knowing. He is holy. He is just. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. And he is a forgiving God. And the whole point of this, as we discover more and more about who God is, that we will see next week, is to learn what does God desire of us? What does God want of us? In knowing who he is, now what are we asked of him? And so that's next week. I leave you again with the joy of knowing that God is who he is. God is a triune God. God is all-knowing. God is holy. God is just. God is gracious. God is slow to anger. And God is a forgiving God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we just thank you for you. We thank you for recognizing that when we go to the scriptures, we can discover who you are. We can discover that indeed you desire a relationship with us. We know that you are not just a far off or distant God that is unknowable, but rather we can come to know much about you, the joy of who you are. And so with that, Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged in our study and in our time of looking to the attributes of who you are so that we might know that better, but more important, that might draw us into a deeper relationship with you. Father, help us also as we go out and tell people about who Christ is, that we recognize that the scriptures are where we need to find those things. Lord, that uh, when we look for questions, that we shouldn't just give our own opinion, but rather we should look to the scriptures for the answers. Recognizing and trusting that indeed what we need to know about you has been wholly revealed. There is nothing that is hidden that we need to discover but you in your grace and your mercy and in your wisdom and your all-knowingness have revealed what needs to be known. So Father, thank you for it. But Lord, also help us to rest and recognize that as we continue to study you, as we continue to look in your word, we will continue to have things about you revealed to us. We can never fully plumb the depths of you. And Father, may that bring peace and rest to our soul knowing that there is no limit to our God, but rather this limitless God has chosen to come to us so that we might know him. We thank you. We love you. We pray these things in your name, dear Jesus. And we ask it all by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say,